found myself moving to Israel uh, for a relationship, which I was in my 40s. And I, my then boyfriend, now husband, I think helped pick our apartment. And I think he instinctively realized that I would feel happy and comfortable if I were living near a market. So he actually found our place. And from the first day that I was living in Tel Aviv, I found myself just standing in the middle of this Carmel market. I had never had the privilege of living near a daily produce market where I could buy fresh food. You know, in on the Upper West Side, I went every Friday to the market. Um, and I just very quickly took to, it's a combination of, it's very Tel Aviv, it's near the beach, it's loud and gritty and dirty and beautiful and full of ethnic stories and people with multi-generational businesses and delicious food to eat and buy. And I just, my journalistic instincts kicked in. I started hanging out, listening to vendors and people and asking a lot of questions. And I just, the, the Shook became my friend <laughs> very quickly. I, you know, I had a lot of close friends in New York and in California. When I got to Israel, I realized I didn't have those super close female friends that I had had for decades in New York. And I made friends and I have some, but I didn't replace them with other people. Some of them I just replaced with the market, <laughs> which, which worked well for me. Um, and it continues on to this day. We live a two-minute uh, walk from the shuk, and I'll look for any excuse to traverse it, pass by, whether it's to buy produce or just to, it's, the shuk itself is, used to be a street of Tel Aviv, and it, it, by, it bisects like two neighborhoods and leads straight down to the water. So it's also just at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, you see people with their wetsuits peeled down walking to surf or home from the beach. And it's just very much a part of the city and the culture, which I really love. How has it influenced your cooking? Should I, do I, is it helpful for me to use this? Or, or yeah, I think, it? use it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> the question was, what was the question? Um, uh, how has the shuk inspired your cooking? I mean, just to give you guys a little bit of an idea, if you haven't, like, the markets in Israel are seasonal in a way that, like, we don't shop that way in New York it's anymore. Not, it's, it's an unpretentious seasonality. Yes. I think it's just people take for granted, you know, if there are no limes, you just don't cook with limes or, or juice limes. If there are no avocados, which there aren't a large part of the year, you don't ask for avocado in your sandwich. And sometimes you learn that the hard way by making a fool out of yourself. Um, and I think you just, a lot of what I like about, um, I'm, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. I'm not religious anymore. I don't keep kosher. But there is something really cool about when you're in the shuk and you ask a vendor, like, when are the pomegranates going to be ripe? And you know, here they would say September 15th, and they would there they would say on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> and a lot of the foods are tied to calendar events in the Jewish calendar, and not in a religious way, but just as like milestones of the year. And it sort of reinforces a lot of the things. It brings back a lot of memories from childhood. Um, and it's weird to me, but they're always right. You know, like they, things always fall out at the right time based on the season. So. I'll, my, my, my cooking can be very purpose-driven. Like if I know something I want to make, I'll go and like look for those ingredients specifically. And oftentimes it can just be, oh, I'm having people over, you know, and it's not like you can go to the shop and count on finding broccoli at all times, because broccoli is actually a highly seasonal item. So I'll think to my mind, oh, 
I'd like to make some kind of brassica, you know, some kind of green thing. So I'll go there and look and see what's going to be the basis of that dish, and then I'll maybe build a, a, a recipe around it, whether for it's for work or just for my personal cooking, and using a lot of the staples and condiments that I either make weekly or bi-weekly or bi that, that are really at the heart of the cookbook. You know, there's like a, the beginning of the book, the first chapter is a series of staple things like homemade labana yogurt or sfug, which is a Yemenite hot sauce, or preserved lemons or preserved lemon paste that you can make that give you a lot of cooking options. And that's sort of, I'll combine those with the produce and the spices and the things that I buy in the shook. So how, I mean, if you guys have read the book, you might have noticed the words by Mike Salamana, who's this really amazing Israeli chef and a very, very dear friend of Adina's. Um, thank you. And Mike talks about that this book is sort of, it's like a window into your home. Mm. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you describe your food to somebody who hasn't had it? How would you describe my food to somebody who hasn't had it? Because <laughs> you've had it. So it's hard for me to describe my own food. <laughs> that is a, um, <laughs> turning the question on the <laughs> No, I, I can answer. She loves that. She loves that. Um, <laughs> my food is laid back, I think. Israeli food is as much of a, of, about a vibe as it is about specific ingredients. It's about being ready to entertain unexpectedly, having a lot of like dips and salads around, um, people popping in, which I feel like in New York just never happens. Yeah. Like spontaneity is scheduled in 15 minute increments, you know, two weeks in advance. So sad and true. Well, that was my life here. And in Israel, I had to, I actually had to adjust to that a little because, you know, like my joke is always that if everyone in New York would just get to the movies five minutes before the movie started, then everyone would get exactly the seat that they wanted. But because everyone else gets there an hour in advance, you have to also. And the same with making plans in Israel. Like, you know, you're not never left out because people are much more spontaneous about the way they they plan and entertain. Like sometimes I'll say, like on Rosh Hashanah, for instance, I found myself back in Israel for a week and we were invited out, but we had the last day open and I just kind of bought a bunch of stuff before the holiday and we created an open-ended lunch. We didn't actually have guests lined up, but we sort of invited a lot of people. A lot of people happened to be around and we we didn't have a fixed start and end time. We just said we'll be around all afternoon and like that happens a lot and the food lends itself to that. It's long cooked dishes that can sit out for a while or you know, dips and salads and delicious, I made my amlachala for Rosh Hashanah, you know, stuff like that. So my cooking is adaptable and unfussy and a lot of homemade things, but not necessarily things I made at that moment. So like I'll use a garlic confit that I make every week and I use the oil to season things that I saute and I toss the confit into a roasted tomato, cherry tomatoes, and put it on top of labanay or hummus, and then top it with pine nuts and all of that. But it's like, it's all like elements that come together as opposed to something that you have to sort of create at one time. By the way, I think my easy way of describing Indian's food is just food that you really want to eat. Like there's very few tables I'd rather show up to than Thank you. Um, Gina's. Well, it's, it's also just about not making, I like when the guests feel at home. So I don't you typically have a set table. I don't have everything finished. Um, I usually like ask people to help like squeeze juice for cocktails or finish something off. And then like everyone's kind of part of it. And it's, it's less of a, it's less formal. Okay. Um, so 
I feel like there's such an interest in Israeli food in the U.S. right now. I could make the same argument that in the U.K. as well, in part because of Atalangi. Yeah. Um, sort of, where do you see yourself in that? Um, it's very, it's an honor just to be nominated. It's very, it's very nice even just be included in a group of all those amazing chefs like Michael Salmanov and Enat Admoni from Malabusta in New York and Taim Falafel and Alan Shaya from New Orleans. Um, but I think that the main difference is that I'm a home cook and I was trained, basically, I always knew that I wanted to be working with my recipes being designated for home cooks. So everything, all the books that I've co-authored with people, the recipes are very much directed towards how to cook at home with uncomplicated steps and ingredients and always with the end user in mind. So I sometimes have to check myself because I, I want to make sure that the recipes are things that people are really going to make. Sort of like I want people to, if you buy a bottle of pomegranate molasses, I want you to find five ways to use it as opposed to one so that it doesn't you know, get past its expiration date or get dusty in the back of the shelf. Same with the, the, the cookbook. Like I want, I want someone to be able to cook through the whole thing. You know? I think Israeli food is one of the, there are a couple of other cuisines, but it's definitely one of the ones that I think is most difficult to sort of put a finger on. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not French cuisine, which has been sort of codified. Um, right. I think of like the cuisines of China, like the regional cuisines of China are much more codified. Right. Um, talk to us, this is a sort of difficult thing to answer, but is Israeli food Jewish food? Is Jewish food Israeli? You know, in the US you say Jewish food and everybody thinks of like pastrami. Yeah. Should we also be thinking like hummus and labne and... Um, um. I mean, I think that if you think of Israel as the Jewish state, you could simplify it and say it's Jewish food, but I don't think of Israel only that way. I think of it as a multicultural place full of two million Israeli Arabs and a lot of tens of thousands of Palestinians working in Israel every day and 60,000 asylum seekers from Africa trying to live there and millions of people from North Africa and a million Russian immigrants. and it just It's just a real mix. So I think that there is obviously a lot of the food that we have come to know and love comes from the fact that Israelis gathered to create a Jewish state in 1948, but it's just a lot bigger story than that. And I think it's, in general, we try to oversimplify cuisines and say like, this is an Arab dish, this is an Israeli dish. Like the argument ends up making the conversation more shallow and we end up spending less time finding out where the dish came from and its provenance and how we can honor it and then how we can bring it into this larger conversation about what is happening with food in Israel. So like in my case, I don't see any point in trying to deny that kanafa, which is an amazing dessert, is an Arab and Palestinian dish. And then if I just say it, it diffuses a lot of the resentment that people have towards not being acknowledged and then I can put my own twist on it feeling good that I shared where it came from. So. I think there are elements of Israeli cuisine that are distinctly Jewish, obviously, and a lot of them have to do with, like I said, the Jewish calendar and the fact that a lot of the best foods are inspired by Shabbat, which is the traditional Sabbath time when people are traditional, people don't actually cook. So there are a lot of long cooked dishes that you prepare overnight, that you prepare the night before and cook overnight on the stove. Just and then you just Kubane briefly. <laughs> So, this is like maybe, in my opinion, the most delicious Sabbath <laughs> dish ever. 
So I mean, the most the most common one is something known as chulent in Ashkenazi cuisine and chamin in Sephardic cuisine, which is a, a stew of meat and beans and potatoes and barley and other things that gets cooked overnight and is very wintry and heavy and delicious. But there are also breads that, like in Yemen, for instance, the community was very poor, didn't have a lot of access to meat or potatoes or barley for that matter. And so they would make an incredible bread where they would uh, leaven dough and um, enrich it with a samane, which is like ghee, essentially, clarified butter, if it wasn't for Shabbat. For Shabbat, they would use oil, potentially. And then they would roll it up almost like crescent rolls and close it very tightly with hard boil with eggs in, tucked in between the rolls and cook it for 12 hours so that it steams and caramelizes on itself and gets yeasty and fragrant and incredible and it rises and it's something that I weirdly have become known for because I'm probably the farthest thing from looking or sounding Yemenite that there is. But one of the first articles I wrote about food for it was for Gourmet Magazine and I cooked with Yemenite women in a suburb of Tel Aviv for the better part of a year when I would visit and that was one of the dishes that I really came to love. And that's a good example of a Sabbath dish, you know. Um, the recipe in the book, it's, it will be one of my winter projects. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very yeasty and delicious. Uh, so I want to go back to um, you writing cookbooks. You've been doing this, I mean, it's your first solo, like big solo book, but you've been writing cookbooks for a while. Tell us how yeah. you got into that. Um, so I'm a late bloomer in the food world in general. I'm 48 and I started working in the food world when I was about 30. And I had wanted to do it earlier than that, but just for a lot of reasons, I, I, I worked as a TV producer and then I did a bunch of other stuff. And then when I finally realized that this is what I really wanted to do, um, I worked for 10 years doing everything I could get my hands on. I worked as a copywriter at Gourmet Magazine. I did food styling, I did catering, I taught cooking, I did tons of food writing for publications like Food & Wine and Gourmet and Bon Appetit. No, not Bon Appetit, actually. They would never take me until now. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a lot of places, and the Wall Street Journal. And then I kind of got a little bit bored with the churn of pitching and trying to get all these articles and I felt like the payoff was becoming less and less satisfying for me because the stories, I couldn't delve as deep. And I was looking for bigger projects. And also, I, I also really always, I remember I used to read cookbooks like novels like in, since my 20s. And I kept seeing this woman's name on a lot of the books that I loved, Melissa Clark. And I was like, who is this person? Why is her name on every chef's book that there is? And I, that was when I first realized that co-authoring was even a thing. Yeah. And I sort of, in my mind, thought, that's something I'd like to do. And so after about eight or nine years of doing all the other stuff, I was lucky enough to get connected with an agent and started co-authoring books. And I've been doing that for, this is my 11th year, and I've written 12 books. Wow. Um, and it just, a good, even though I'm writing my own books, I'll still collaborate with people because I love, I like to learn, and no matter who else you're cooking with, you're gonna learn a lot, whether you have more skill or they have more skill, but everyone always has something to bring to the table and their culture, their background, the tricks and tips and the stories. So I quickly learned, realized that it was something that I was good at. Like I always joke that if I wasn't doing this, I'd be someone, like a high powered person's executive assistant, because <laughs> I really like helping other people and kind of 
organizing things for them and helping them see their vision come to light and like that's what I get to do when I write books and then I finally had to do it in my own service for this book after a long time and that was actually really hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, yeah. was it getting to write in your own voice and to choose your own recipes, was it exciting, nerve-wracking, freeing, some combination of all of the above? Um, I initially was very excited and then I sort of got, went into a period of like major self-doubt because I had been writing in other people's voices for the better part of a decade and it took me a while to kind of recapture my own voice and to have confidence that I had something meaningful to say and that my writing was worthwhile, both technically and also just content-wise. So I struggled a lot with that and so I kind of put the writing to the side and just did all the cooking. And I mean, I'll, I often, I followed the advice that I always give the people I write books with. I always say, they always say, when are we gonna start writing? And I say, like, let's cook first and write later because, you know, I always say we develop a culinary language that we share when we develop all this food together. And by the time the recipes are done, I know you so well. So I had to get to reacquainted with myself and my, the way that I wanted to cook this book and, and figure out the message that I had. Um, and it really became a very, I also was very, felt intimidated by having a responsibility to kind of like, bear the flag of Israeli food and share it with the world and be an ambassador and, and represent every ethnicity. There are like a hundred ethnic groups living in Israel. And then I just, the more I distilled the story down to my personal story of living in the market and how I like to cook, it, the pieces just kind of fell into place. And I think it became a more compelling narrative. I know one of the things that you felt really strongly about when you were working on this book was working, was the style of the book, the photographs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about. Also, I mean, I think you know my, my favorite thing about your photo shoots. Yeah. You, you might need to talk about that for a minute. What, what is that? The, the shower. We've talked about there was, there was, I forgot. <laughs> there, there were some photos, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we, so um, I, I was really important for me to work with an Israeli creative team. Um, I'm very fortunate because I've written so many great books in the United States that I know a lot of the top food photographers here and I'm friends with them. And everyone I think assumed that I was gonna just fly someone over to Israel to shoot the book in like a two week process, which is how it gets done typically here. But also because Israel is hyper seasonal, like it's impossible, you know, you can't, you can't shoot strawberry. It's not like here where you can fly in a strawberry from California or find it in the bodega because it's flown in from Chile. Like, yeah, there, there's no food <laughs> kick in Israel or if fresh rack if, if it's not, work if it's not season, in season, you cannot get it unless you smuggle it in from like a trip abroad. So we actually shot the book in like two and three day chunks over the course of a year. And I met with a lot of Israeli photographers and um, I ended up working with Dan Peretz, who's a well-known Israeli photographer. I just also really liked him as a person and if any of you are interested in doing a book, it's really important that the people you collaborate with, you also click with on a personal level because you're gonna be spending a lot of time with them and trusting them to you know, carry out your vision. And also, like, I wanted, even though I lived in Israel, I think I know the food well, I'm definitely still a stranger in a strange land and I felt that by working with an Israeli staff that they would help ground me even further in the place and give me more insights into the culture and just those little granular details that an American photography would never pick up on. And it worked out really well. My stylist brought all the props, Nuri. She's been working forever in Israel and she was kind of a pain in the ass, but she's a genius. <laughs> so, you know, I had to just kind of 
give in to her ureteness and she brought amazing props from home and like if I had a funny idea like there are these little napkins in Israel that say Betamon, which is the Hebrew equivalent of like Bon Appetit and you get them at every anywhere you get like a falafel or a shawarma or um, they're like those super thin napkins so like, like I really wanted one of those like crumpled in a picture you know and so she just thought that was a like, cool and fun you know so like so, so that was and I think the photographs have they look fresh and current, but they don't look like Instagram photos. They have like timeless quality, and I wanted that to be the look of the book, so that if you pick it up in a few years, like you can still enjoy it, can still feel new. Did you guys shoot the entire book with natural light? Yeah, there was no flash involved in the book. It was really important. Don is known for, that's why I wanted to work with him. He's known for working with natural light only. Um, he sometimes uses reflectors a little bit, but there are no flashes, and Israel has incredible sunlight, and it changes so much from time of day. There are like a series of pictures in the book that are like a lot of hard shadows, and that's a really essential part of Israeli life, like that hot, hard sun. And some of the pictures really embody that feeling really nicely. And when you mentioned the bathroom, <laughs> Like the light, it, I had a lot of windows. Wait, can we back up for one second and just explain? Yes, I'm going to. Okay. So we shot in my apartment, and at the end of the day, the light was coming in from the north, and before it was setting on the beach, and we like we were losing the light, so we like ran into the, the guest bathroom with a plate of like smooth marinated lamb chops and quickly <laughs> photographed them and we got the shot, you know, so like whatever it takes. So we shot half in my apartment and half in my photographer's studio. It was fun. It takes over your life. I'd say for each, we shot 16 days total for the book and I'd say that for each day of shooting, it's like three days of work minimum. So it was like, it's a lot of work to do the creative part of the book but it was worth it. Um, talk to us a little bit about the recipes. I think that, you know, there's definitely, at least from what I'm seeing on Instagram, there's a couple of recipes that have really sort of like caught on or, yeah, um, yeah what are the ones that you mm. keep seeing people making? I think what makes me happy about the two most popular recipes is they're both brown. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. So like, there's the, the melted cabbage, which I see everyone making. It's basically just seared wedges of green cabbage. You sear it like steak. And then a lot of my recipes, like they do have like a classic component. Like, you know, you basically braising in wine and stock, kind of like you would meat, you know. But um, it's cabbage. And the longer you cook it, the more it kind of like slumps in on itself and sweetens and caramelizes and also parts of it get more savory and meaty and I just, people keep, people are really drawn to it. I mean, I think because the, the base ingredient is so humble and simple and inexpensive, so that's one. And you can put creme fraiche on the top or like a little pat of butter. Um, someone told me they pureed it and made like a soup out of it, oh, which I thought was a great idea. And then the tahini blondies, which keep bubbling up everywhere, like, a lot of my recipes look familiar but taste different. So like blondie is super American and a lot of the recipes are filtered through the lens of my upbringing and the food that I've cooked my whole life. So the blondies look very standard but they have you know, toasted black and white sesame seeds in them and cardamom and black pepper and then obviously tahini. Like, so like you might think you'd have like a peanut butter blondie here but you take a bite of this thing and then it kind of transports you right to the shook. And I think people like that one too because it's easy, you know? 
think it's also just such a creative mix of flavors. Like, I love that there's cardamom in it. Yeah, you know, I really love cardamom. Not everyone does. So someone said, oh, I could use cinnamon. And I was like, sure, that's great. And, you know, so a lot of people are putting chocolate chips in them or chopped nuts. And, you know, I like seeing people improvise and view that look at the recipes more as sort of inspiration or guidelines as opposed to hard and fast rules because that's kind of the way that I cook too, you know. And it's, when things go wrong all the time in the kitchen <laughs> and you just have to roll with it and be forgiving of yourself and, you know. Um, speaking of that, was there was there a recipe, like one particular, where it just was, it just took a really long time to get it to be foolproof? Yes. <laughs> um, there's a there's a Yemenite bread called lachuch, which is a, it looks like a pancake that is full of holes, and it's sold in Yemenite bakeries all over Israel, and it's typically used in a savory setting to, to mop up soup. You know, it's used even instead of a spoon sometimes. You just, like, soak it and eat the bread. And it's it's got a lot of yeast and leavening in it, and then you sort of cover it with plastic wrap and let it quickly ferment for like an hour and a half because there's so much yeast in there. And then it has a pourable texture, kind of like a pancake. And then when you cook it in the pan, it develops like lots of tiny holes. And it still kind of looks like a mix between like a crumpet and an injera and an English muffin and all these different things. And it was good, but it just it kept, there was always like a sogginess to it that I couldn't figure out, like I was making it, I, I collected recipes, I talked to Michael about it, I talked to Yemenite people who make it, and finally I realized that like all Jewish mothers, like they all withheld like the most important ingredient, <laughs> which was brown fenugreek, and what that does is it has a gelatinous quality, so what it does is it keeps, it lifts up the dough, and then when it's cooking, there's a structure that's formed, and then the air is able to like come out of it, and it it's much lighter and air. It's still good without it, but like once I got that, like, but I probably made it a hundred times. Oh my gosh, <laughs> wow. I mean, luckily the base ingredients are cheap. It's like flour, yeast, and water, you know, no eggs even. It's just really simple, but it was, you know, I'm pretty perfectionist when it comes to the recipes. I feel like on the cookbook, you know, if people don't like your writing, that's subjective and that's their prerogative, but if a recipe doesn't work, then you failed the user. You know, like it yep. needs to just technically work. Uh, are there any recipes in the book that you personally just, you you really, really love them and you haven't seen somebody make them yet and you want people to not, <laughs> don't miss this recipe, essentially? I mean, it's been interesting because the book came out right before the Jewish holidays and there are many non-Jewish people cooking, but a lot of people are using the, the things that have pomegranates and apples and honey and all that stuff in it. So I think as the seasons change, I think we're going to see people cooking things. There's a lot of produce in the book. Um, I just saw somebody make the harira soup recently, which the harira is like a North African soup. It typically has meat in it, and it's really thick, like a porridge. It has chickpeas and tiny noodles and a lot of spice. And I made mine vegetarian, and it's really delicious. It's like and as it sits around, it gets thicker, kind of. So you starts out like a soup, and then you know how like pasta kind of expands and then releases its starch. So you can either eat it like that or add more broth or water to it. Really, really good. Uh, I can think of a lot more, but, you know. Um, if any of you guys follow Adina on Instagram, you might have seen that she uh, is really great about interacting with her audience. And I'm curious, 
who, I mean, I'm sure you've heard from people sort of like all over the United States, and the book is now mm -hmm. on sale in Israel. Have you gotten any, like, somebody's cooking one of your recipes in like rural jazz? Yes. Oh, Dubai the other day. Cool. Um, Australia, France. Um, I haven't seen Japan yet, um, but I'm sure I will. <laughs> I hope eventually. Um, sorry? Yeah. I was just giving her time. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. I mean, it's fun to see people, and a lot of people are communicating to me by showing them, me photos of what they're cooking, and I get a lot of questions too. Like, I have a, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with babka, which is like a, like a yeast risen cake that's rolled with like some kind of a sweet filling and then braided and baked, it's really good. It has like a syrup. Raquel, my friend here, wrote Uri Shep's uh, Breaking Bread's book, and she's, she's like the babka queen. Or the babka <laughs> lady in waiting. But, so she would definitely know. But um, so I always, like, all babka recipes, like, you have to make three. And I was just like, I, what if I just want one babka? <laughs> so I call my recipe just one babka. And like, I figured out how to make just one because that's usually enough and I don't want to have to give away one or freeze one because it's really best when it's fresh. But someone wrote me today and asked me like, can I double or triple the recipe? And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't put that in the book. Like, stupid. Of course you can, you know. So, you know, I get a lot of questions like that, which I like, because I'm always learning things, you know, that thing, things I omitted. You know, we as writers, we, and cook cooks, I mean, all the recipes were tested by several different people, but, that's really important because, you know, we, we miss the most important questions ourselves, especially when it comes to cooking. So when you put a recipe out there, it's all the questions are gonna expose themselves really quickly, which is a good thing. I feel like, in my mind, Jay is, Jay, who's Adina's husband, is such a, he's sort of, I mean, he, he's in the book and he's just like such a part of your cooking. Is there a, <laughs> is there a Jay, is there a favorite Jay recipe? So um, my husband moved to Israel in his early 20s, like 30 years ago. Um, and he, his father owned a roadside diner in Millerton, New York. So he's really into, like, uh, he likes like American cooking. Okay. Know? So he like, he really likes pastas. And I mean, he like, there's a classic, like the grilled cheese toast in Israel is like a very popular, he really likes like my toasts I make, like I always take all the different condiments and spreads that I have. So like I'll spread one side of the bread with, you know, preserved lemon paste and then the other side with slug and then I'll put feta and three kinds of cheese and roasted tomatoes and I'll make him like this crazy grilled cheese sandwich. Like he loves that. Um, but he's a very open receptive. He likes, there's like a, a root vegetable and um, meat stew with medjool dates and preserved lemons in it. And he loves preserved, he loves anything lemony so. There's a phrase in Hebrew, limon mosif hamon, which means like lemon adds something good to everything. <laughs> you know, so like I'm always we. I think one of the things that typifies Israeli cuisine is it's spicy and citrusy and bright and elemental and simple, and it's kind of exotic and transported it without being inaccessible or complicated. So like I think lemon is probably the most common ingredient in the book. I have always have a huge, I never have enough, I'm always running out, you know. Uh, so I want to ask one more question before we get to questions from the audience, which is just, what's next for you? Mm. Um, well, hopefully when my book tour ends in December, I'm going to just watch TV for a month straight. <laughs> have you seen Succession? 
I just finished Fleabag. I watched like both seasons of Fleabag and Twelve on a plane, like in one sitting. That was wow, amazing. that's impressive. Loved it. But um, I'm I'm going to be doing a third book with Chrissy Teigen at some point. Um, I'm writing a book. How many of you guys have been to Israel or Tel Aviv? So there's a little um, sparkling drinks shop called um, Cafe Levinsky Forty One, and they make something called Gazos, which is very classic Israeli drink of seltzer with some kind of juice. And there's a man in Tel Aviv named Benny Briga who has kind of revived the tradition and taken it somewhere else completely. He does his own fermentation of dozens of kinds of fruits and maceration of spices. And he makes his own kombucha and June and kefir. And he builds these beautiful glasses with fresh flowers and herbs at the top, like every glass is like a bouquet, a drinkable bouquet, and we're doing a book for artisan books, like all about the drinks and the culture of the drinks. Um, and then at some point, hopefully, I'll do another book of my own. If I'm always in my book on Amazon, <laughs> we're on it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so we'd love to open up questions to the audience. I was just wondering what the reception has been like now that it's selling in Israel. Uh, what you are a rec relatively recent right. move. What's there. the reception in Israel? Yeah. So, um, I didn't think that Israelis would have any interest in my book whatsoever because, you know, <coughs> I'm like a, you know, a greenhorn living in Israel. But a lot of Israeli publications have written about the book, and I think that. Sometimes being a culinary outsider in a culture can be really beneficial because you see different uses for ingredients and ways to apply them. And people have been excited about the book. And someone told me, like, oh, don't, 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 try, don't go into the Israeli market. Like, they're going to trash you. It's going to be hard. But people have been incredibly supportive and positive about the book. And I mean, I would still say that the majority of the people buying the book in Israel are Anglo's, you know, who have read about it in English language publications. But is several Israeli magazines and newspapers have written about it. So that's been a really pleasant surprise. And I had a, a little inkling that that might be because I, I, one of the, another reason that I liked working with an Israeli creative team is because I felt like every recipe was an opportunity for me to convince these people that like you could put Tlina in caramel. And it would be like, that's a terrible idea. And then they'd be like, this is, this is good. you know. So like it was a very confidence building for me throughout the shoot to show them how I use their ingredients in different ways and kind of win them over to my side. And it's not like I've been courting the Israeli press or market or anything, but like it's a small place and I know people in the industry, so it's been generally positive, you know. Um, I saw there was a hand all the way in the back. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to ask you about being an Ashkenazi in Israel and how yes. you being kind of raised in America, no doubt, in an Ashkenazi. Uh -huh cooking world, yes. and how has that been to make the transition? Do you feel like there's anything you've had to leave behind in Israel? And is there anything that you would say is missing, um, Ashkenazi, that's missing from the Israeli culture? Um, so Ashkenazi, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, is, is people of Eastern European descent, like Poland, uh, Germany, all over Eastern Europe. Um, I think you know Israel. The founders of the Israeli state were Ashkenazi, and they were actually very interested. Like you know, schnitzel, which is a classic Israeli dish, is obviously based on Wiener schnitzel, like Viennese pounded veal. You know, veal in Israel in the forties and fifties was unheard of, so it's all made with chicken and turkey. 
Um, but they were trying to aspire to, like, some people joke that they were just trying to recreate, like, Switzerland or, you know, the, like, the beautiful, you know, promenades of Europe in Israel. And they did do that to a certain level. But there were, you know, millions of people from North Africa and other countries that felt marginalized for a long time. And then their cuisine kind of had its revival in the starting in probably the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you know, Ashkenazi people embraced it, and that has been the prevailing food for a long time. But I think that we're starting to see, sort of, you know, that still half of Israel is Ashkenazi, pretty, pretty much, and also there are a million Russian immigrants came in the late '80s, and you know, they're very into you know their cured and smoked fish and potatoes and dill and all those things that. Ashkenazim are really used to and I think that like a lot of the cuisines in Israel it's just going to take like some young Russian chef or Ashkenazi chef who's going to like take the cuisine and make it his own and it's going to pop out and it's going to create start a trend like it's bubbling you know you can't you, there there are no bagels in Israel really like good bagels um there is no, there isn't there's good herring and cured fish but it's always kind of been like oh that that gross stinky stuff now I think you know, writers like Ronit Barrett from Aretz and other people have been helping to celebrate that cuisine. I think what's the common denominator is well-made food. I don't like to use the words artisan because it feels snobby to me, but like well-made foods that are authentic. And so if those come from the Ashkenazi tradition, like at M25, which is a really great steakhouse near right a block from my house, um, they have an incredible tongue dish that it's like a thick slice of tongue that's been cured and then grilled. And it's just like super delicious and melts in your mouth. And Jonathan Borowitz, the chef, is super Ashkenazi, but he definitely put his own twist on it by grilling it, you know? And he serves it with amazing mixed, you know, a little plate of hot sauces that come from all the different cultures. There's preserved lemon, there's salute, there's horseradish, there's mustard, you know? So I, I don't feel, I don't feel particularly attached to my identity as an Ashkenazi cook, but like my mom's overnight chicken soup is another one of the recipes that's been really popular in the book. It's like a very classic chicken soup that I've updated a little bit. Um, I think we're gonna see interesting interpretations of that food like coming down the pike. Uh, Liz, did you have your hand raised earlier? Yeah, I was curious like I think a lot of good books have a mission. Like the yeah. like, it's not just like the good voice, but it's like there's a mission. There's something you want us to know. So I'm curious if you feel like you have a mission. Does my book have a mission? Yeah, it's a really, it's a very. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm like a very optimistic and positive person. So I guess one of my missions is just to like encourage people to keep cooking fun and non-intimidating and like it could be Israeli food or any food but it's about like I feel often that people get tripped up by something complicated in a book and so instead of cooking they'll just like not do it so my general message is like if there's something you can do to take a shortcut that's going to allow you to make a meal do that as opposed to not cooking um, when it comes to Israel my my general desire is for people to see Israel kind of beyond like the headlines that they like the idea that they have in the news I don't it's not like I'm trying to convince anyone of a particular yeah. 
political agenda. Like I have my own views, but it's more just that, like any place, like it's much richer and more nuanced and complicated than, than what people see. And by telling the stories of people that I cooked with, like I hope to share some of that complexity with people without taking a political stance, particularly. Question off of that question. Question. <laughs> like yeah. I, I'm sorry, I just inserted myself. Um, do you think that, I'm so curious about like when you're working with other cookbook authors uh -huh. and like, and what you think the best approach is when you're doing that, like the, your mission yeah. that you just spoke of besides yeah. some of the political stuff, mm -hmm. does that usually like align with the people that you end up working with, that kind of unfussy and like, and, and that, uh, that ability for the home cook to like make it their own, like do those things usually align with the authors that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, I've come, I've been, there are different, there are, cookbook co-authoring is a very uh, particular niche. Mm -hmm. And I think I kind of, I uh, made a choice to, to do more mass market commercial projects for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted to reach more people, I wanted to make money. <laughs> And um, I also like believe in simple cooking. Like very, that's like something that I, it just embodies the way that I cook. Yeah. So I haven't done a lot of the sort of chefy books for a variety of reasons. And those books I think are much more complicated with many steps. I mean, that being said, you know, even sometimes, you know, I wrote a fried chicken cookbook and like some of them like take three days to brine and you know, there are 19 spices in the spice blend. Like if it's something that's someone's authentic recipe, like I'm not gonna dumb it down and strip it away of its history. But like if I have something to say about how the recipe is created, my goal is gonna be that people want to cook it and can't cook it. That doesn't mean like, for instance, with Chrissy Teigen, her mom is Thai. And, you know, she was pretty adamant about, you know, not like, you know, fish sauce like appears everywhere. Like the five years ago, that was still pretty, you know, in like a mainstream cookbook that sold, you know, half a million copies. That's, but she was like, no, I'm not gonna say like use soy sauce instead of fish sauce. Like we're gonna use, you know, it, it, it's authentic and real. And, you know, say now, you know, we use like different kinds of Asian seasoning sauces and pickled garlic cloves and things like that. that people started seeking out because of her books. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a there's a, a tension, but also like a positive, like soft border between like what's easy and then like giving people gateways to exploring new things by buying a few things and trying different things. So like that's always where you have to find the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Even with my book, you know, like I always have to be checked because like you know, I at this point I think, oh, you can get zatar at Seven <laughs> Eleven. You know, like you can't still. You know, so like I have a recipe for zatar in the book. You know, you can use fresh oregano, and I have a method for microwaving herbs for ninety seconds that dries them, and then you mix them with all kinds of other spices and seasonings, and you make zatar in five minutes as opposed to having to go buy it or find it or source it on Amazon. Speaking of which, I had to buy date syrup. For the, Ceylon or date syrup? Right, Ceylon. Is that hard to find? Um, I did get it from the internet, and, uh -huh. it, and it came, um, and it had opened oh. and leaked oh. out, but just the right amount was left in the jar <laughs> so for the recipe. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. A lot of Israeli products are viscous and leaky, like tahini yeah. and pomegranate. And, like, I, I, you know, I ordered pomegranate molasses for a demo, 
And like I got one of those messages from Amazon, like we've refunded your money because your product was damaged. You know, and like I never even made it to me. But again, like I have a recipe for to make pomegranate molasses. All you need is like a, you know, a four cup bottle of Palm Wonderful pomegranate juice and like a tablespoon of honey, and then you can make your own in forty minutes. So like I tried to give people so cool. ideas and solutions for that where I could. Um, any other questions? Yeah. You mentioned that the, the photos aren't like taken with like Instagram in mind or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Do you think what what was your opinion or what's like been your results, I guess, of writing a cookbook in twenty nineteen with you know the internet? Um, first of all I love Instagram. <laughs> so let me just stop like I didn't mean to deride Instagram. Yeah. It's been great for me, also a way to develop my audience and also like I, I do a lot of cooking videos like to hip hop music and like I'm 48 so I think I'm cool but you know, <laughs> people indulge me people indulge me like 90s hip hop but as far as the as far as the, the cookbook in 2019 I mean I think the most important thing is to create the book that you want to write like and stick to your guns and your guts about what it is that is going to like work for you like I, I started out having some, like I would look at a lot of books and see like, you know, a lot of mess. You know I mean? And it's not like my books don't have crumbs and like that's still cool, but like I, I, I sort of came upon like an idea of how I wanted the book to look that I felt was an extension of the writing. And like the, like the pictures are like, they're nice and they're, they're familiar and like some of them have a sense of humor, but they're not, um, I don't know how to describe it, but I think um, I think just if you're when whatever you're doing like a create a book like that, like it's like you get to choose how you want it to look, and like I wanted my book to look different than the other than any other books that are out there right now. That was that was a goal of mine. Do we have time for one more? Yeah. Uh, maybe one last question. If not, I have one last question. But I think. Do you, oh yeah. Do you? I feel like kitchen like the way one operates in the kitchen is yeah. very personal do you have a like a gadget or a tool that you just find yourself mm -hmm. always reaching for gadget that i use all the time um so i have um a like a, a countertop citrus juicer like i started out with the kind of like semi-professional one that was like a hundred bucks and like it's great for an orange or a lemon or lime and then like last year i moved up to there's one that's made on a kibbutz called the Zaxenberg. It's like, it's the one that you, that all the juice shops use to juice their citrus by hand and I bought it and it was like the best investment they ever make because I'm constantly juicing citrus, like yeah. whether it's for cocktails or for cooking or baking or whatever. So that's something that I use all the time. So like if you're gonna cook a lot of Middle Eastern food, like if I also really like that Breville makes a electric juicer um, and it's excellent. Like it extracts every last drop of juice. It's stainless steel. It works like a charm. It never breaks down. Like when I lived here, I had one. As you can tell, I'm like kind of wistful for it. But I sold it because it was a different electricity. And I might buy one um, because I can buy it at duty free in Israel and they have it. But for now, I really like this one. And I use my microplane zester a lot. I also use nut milk bags a lot because I make my own almond milk with um, like sweetened with dates um, and vanilla and sea salt. And also I make cold brew and I use a nut milk bag to keep the grinds in the bag with cinnamon sticks and cardamom pods. And yeah. so like I have like the nut milk bags that are dark brown from the coffee and then the ones that are still white from the milk. <laughs> 
So those are like a couple things. I have a lot of, I, but I, I don't have a huge kitchen. Even in Israel, I have a great kitchen, but I try not to like overdo it with gadgets. Should we wrap up and we can go and enjoy some of it? I'm really excited for the teeny caramel tart. I've been looking at, at that photo for a long time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, yes, we have some dessert for you, and um, uh, Adina will be signing books, and we have books for sale up front. Also, we have her tahini short stack, and feel free to hang out. And if you want to do like a really spectacular um, psychedelic thing, uh, if you're in a chair, if you could stack it and make this party in the middle, it's a small space. So thank you for working with us. All right, thank you guys. Bye.